these malted frosted shakes and ice creams and things like that. And, and Fortnum's had them all. And I mean, I just was in heaven. And I remember sitting there with my mother next to me. My mother ordered, of course, just a cup of tea and, I don't know, sort of citron pressé or something like right. that. Right. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, of course, wanted things with sprinkles and nuts and strawberry syrup and chocolate of course, every, of course, of course, magic. And it was one of those things where you were so puzzled by grown-ups because if they wanted to, because of all the money grown-ups have, they could have come in there every day, but they didn't. <laughs> Why not? Hello and a very warm welcome to Fortnum's Hungry Minds podcast with me, Felicity Blunt. Today, I'm delighted to bring you the second serving of my chat with one of the UK's best-loved actors, comedians, writers and quiz show hosts, to name but a few of his talents. Stephen Fry is referred to as a modern-day Oscar Wilde, a living icon and a true Renaissance man. There seems to be no end to his ability to excel at whatever he does. If you didn't catch the first half of our conversation last week, I do strongly urge you to listen to it after this episode is finished. We talked about Stephen's rural upbringing in Norfolk, the reasons for his long-standing vegetarianism, the undeniable status the kitchen table has at the heart of the home, and even the symbolism of sugar puffs. For now, though, let's dive straight back into my chat with the brilliant Stephen Fry. In all my reading, I've heard you be terribly rude about yourself in the sense that you sort of you say you can't sing you can't dance you obviously love music you call it the dog's bollocks mm. but you <laughs> don't do sport although I know you love cricket but I was curious if that has changed over the years particularly as you sort of as your palate has changed and your eating and the way that you're eating whether you're you're kinder to yourself about what you're capable of because I sort of I have this suspicion that you might actually be capable of everything but no, no, believe me <laughs> anything that you do and Ed Burns said this you are a master craftsman so I just can't help but oh, think you know you could honestly not you could waltz <laughs> I, I think there is the um it's not a paradox exactly but it's a slightly self-contradictory truth it seems it but it isn't once you know your limitations you mm. seem almost to have none <laughs> Yes. I think it's incredibly important to know what your limitations are. And it doesn't mean that you give up and don't do things you can't do, but just but know that some things will take you longer and you'll need to concentrate more. And I think a good example is writing a novel. Nobody can write a novel because it is so difficult. Just simply the length of time. It doesn't almost doesn't matter how good the novel is. To produce 80,000 words that are deliberately put in a certain order to tell a story, to reveal characters and so on, to do that takes a phenomenal amount of work. And Douglas Adams said to me when I started my first book, he said, you will be shocked at how hard it is. I mean, truly shocked. And if you aren't, then I'm afraid you, you won't make a writer. And I then discovered that, I know that Douglas wasn't stealing it from him, it was a, his original thought, but Thomas Mann had said something rather similar. He said, a, a writer is just an ordinary person who finds writing more difficult than others. And that's the point. It isn't easy. It's hard. And so take the average person, and some of, some of your listeners m might have had this experience too, of wanting to write a novel, because it's a common, common experience. You might well have written half a first chapter that is kind of brilliant and exciting, and you've gone to bed that night thinking, I'm on to something here. And then the next morning, your heart sinks a little because it's not quite as good as you remembered, but you gamely go on. Then you have to start chapter two, and you become very stuck. I mean, really stuck. 
and you start writing stuff and you screw it up and you hate it and then you slam it into a drawer and never want to look at it again. You're furious. But that's only the only reason you slammed it in the drawers because you thought it should be easier than this. And it shouldn't. It's supposed to be that hard because it's a monumentally difficult thing to do. How much planning do you do when you write? Because I'm thinking about your preparation for cooking. Do you write a synopsis or are you somebody who does sit and start chapter one? There's a great, great quote from Paul Clay, the artist, uh, who was asked how he he drew a picture. And he said, "I, I take a line for a walk. And, and that's, that's what I do, really. I just, I start, but, but it all goes on in your head as you're trying to drop off to sleep when you're on a morning walk, when you're off just, you know, you're buying a newspaper, whatever it is, that's when the brain is sifting through possibilities. But the one thing I had as an advantage of knowing Douglas and of writing my first book is, is I know how difficult so many things are. And once you know that, it liberates you from feeling guilty that you're not finding it easier. And so you then throw yourself into it. For example, if I, I'm not saying I could carve Michelangelo's The David, because obviously he was a one-off genius. But let's imagine an, if there were such a thing as an ordinarily gifted sculptor who could do a bust, and you and I would look at it and go, wow, that's good, I wish I could do that. Well, I know how far away I am from doing that. So if I wanted to do it, I wouldn't just rush in and pick up a chisel and go, oh, bollocks, I can't do this. <laughs> I, would, I would go to someone and say, can you give me a rough idea of how you go about doing a bust? And then I would practice on my own secretly and privately and embarrassingly making terrible things. And it, if, if it was a bet or, or something, it might take me 10 years, whereas it took the ordinary sculptor uh, uh, 10 days to do that sculpture because I was aware of how unsuited I was to doing it I would know that it would take me a very long time and so I've had the advantage I suppose of spending most of my time on things for which I am better suited even though they can be difficult at least I know there can be an end in... I don't know if I'm making myself no, very clear. No, you are, because I, I think what you've yeah. always said is language has always come easily to you. Like, you have always had that, and that has always been... I mean, it sounds like both your shield and your sword in sort of reading about you. You are extraordinarily dexterous. You are one of a kind. We would all recognise your voice if we heard you on the radio. We'd know immediately it was you, in the same way that I think if you read A.A. A. Gill, you would know it was him. You know, there yes, were people with exactly. very distinct voices and very distinct mastery of the English language and that's just so clearly borne out in everything that you've done and I am going to tell you that I consider you an artist even if you only classify yourself as an entertainer you're very kind no I absolutely insist upon you being an artist I really do Well, well it's certainly I think fortunate in this culture to have as your main facility language because it is far and away the you know the one that will take you furthest you know, I look at those who have a gift for drawing and painting or, or, or for music with, with hungry, envious eyes. But I'm aware those gifts, although they can, they can make you rich and famous and all the rest of it, they don't, they don't sort of open doors through all levels of society uh, in, in the way that language does. Language is helpful, not just if you're in the media world and you want to be in writing, advertising, show business, script writing, you know, whatever it is, obviously, but also just... You will rise to the top in the civil service, in business, in industry, in sales, which is, what is sales but the use of language to 
persuade, to change people's minds, rhetoric, the oldest of the subjects, really. And and um, so in that sense, it's very fortunate if if one doesn't have too much trouble in putting one word in, in front of another. And it also teaches one very strongly how difficult it must be if articulation and self-expression don't come easily to people. How many people really actually are inside feeling and capable of it doing extraordinary things, but the expression doesn't come easily. And it's funny you should mention Adrian Gill, A.A. Gill, because he was a superb writer, a brilliant writer, but one of the most profoundly dyslexic people I'd ever come across. He didn't write a single word of what he wrote, in fact. He dictated, because he, he was so, so dyslexic. Dyslexia doesn't give you a problem with language, it just gives you a problem with the with the lexical side of it, the lettering, the, the part of it that is to do with writing. For thousands of years, human beings got, got, got along without writing. My sister, conversely, is a stutterer, and I think that's another thing that, you know, when you are a child and has actually was able to overcome it by becoming somebody else on stage you know i was going to say that's your sister emily the actress so uh, yeah. as an actress and my friend rowan atkinson has has a stutter and he's actually made it quite a good comic tool because he has these pauses to in front of words that rowan is likely to say most famously bees so the just saying the word bob is very funny. When Rowan says Bob, you know there's a hint of a second before the B. It's a kind of Bob. And uh, there, there was a, uh, just a side story. Um, we were recording one of the Blackadders um, at the BBC. It was in the fourth series in the First World War. And uh, Gabby Glaister, who played played Bob, the driver in this episode, it was the one with Rick Mail as, as an airman. And Rick Mail sees Bob the driver coming to collect him because he's downed his, his plane behind the trenches and he sees her and goes, woof! And <laughs> she goes, woof! Because she likes the look of him. And he goes, woof! And she goes, woof! And the line in the script, which uh, we did enjoy, was, was, was Rowan just shaking his head because it's like Battersea dogs home in here. And that was, <sighs> that was the line. And so we, we come to do it in front of the audience and we get woof, 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 and Rowan goes, blimey, it's like bad to see dogs. And he can only just get it out, and there's a slightly embarrassing moment, and he tries again, and he couldn't do it. And then I saw the floor manager uh, put her hand to her ear, as obviously someone was talking to her from the gallery, and I subsequently discovered it was John Lloyd, the producer, who'd obviously suggested an alternative line for Rowan. So she whispered in his ear, and Rowan nodded and put his thumb up. Then we started the scene again, and it went woof, 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 and Rowan said, blimey, it's like Crofts in here. Ah. <laughs> it was just... It was... A genius on the part of John Lloyd to yes. find the one word to replace Battersea Dogs Home with Crofts that he wouldn't uh, stutter yeah. on, you know. And, of course, it's also reveals that truth we know about stutterers, that, that by the time they're 12, they're sophisticated at instantly choosing words that don't begin with the letters that they're most likely to stutter on. And fortunately, English is a language which is so rich in synonyms that you can do that. I remember when I was... Uh, reading English and uh, at, at university studying English and as as we'd say now and and 
of course, you start more or less in chronological order. And in the in the fourteenth century in, in in England, apart from Chaucer, there was a, what was known as the alliterative tradition. You know, Gawain and the Green Nagoma, Gawain and the Green Knight. And instead of words rhyming, they they had the same the letters at the beginning of of the, each word that gave it. Presumably the reciting bard could remember each line because of the this is the one with the W's in it. But one of the things you realised was that even back then, in, in the 14th century, the English language, Anglo-Saxon with the new French in it as well, was rich enough for there to be virtually a word beginning with every main letter to describe whatever you wanted. So if you wanted horse, you could say horse. But if your letters began with an M, you would say mount. If it began with an S, you could say stallion or steed. And you could have mare instead of mount. You know, and indeed there was, for B, there was blonk. Blonk uh, is a um, a word for horse, an old, old English word. Dochty blonk is doughty steed. Is do- and I always, I remember thinking at the time, God, that's... So even the word man, of course, it had white, if it begins with W, uh, which in Chaucer was wicht, but a white, a man. But gome meant a man as well. So that Gawain and the Green Knight, because it's alliterative, is actually Gawain and the Green Goma. You can, oh, so it's okay, a perfect yeah. thing for someone with a stutter to study and just select all the little synonyms they could choose instead of the ones beginning with B or whatever was there. Yeah, and uh, you manage it, don't letter. you? But it's, yeah. it's interesting having no issue with that and you obviously are utterly fluent to see as you say that you know the power of the word was absolutely your passport into any of your careers in any room even if in, in, in university I know you only went to three lectures um and I, I can't help but <laughs> you think are well that <laughs> I am well researched well, I've spent a very happy 48 hours watching you listening to you I saw the oh wonderful interview you did with um Robin Williams with Parkinson and I mean it's actually oh, been yes. just it's actually been heavenly I have to say it's been true escapist it's funny, joy it's funny you should mention that interview with Robin Williams who you know, whom we still mourn. He was such an extraordinary talent and spirit. But I had a, I was a, a godson of mine. I was it my nephew, one or the or a nephew, or one or the other, called me up uh, the next day and said, "Oh, I, lo- I enjoyed that Parkinson." And they said, oh, "Robin Williams is so funny, isn't he?" He said, "But it's, he's a bit sweaty, isn't he?" And he had noticed that the sweat was sticking on his shirt. And if it, the two obvious things about Robin Williams was. Firstly, how hairy he was. Yes. yes. (laughs) Furry, back of hands. But also, he invited me into his dressing room after the show. We, you know, we sat and chatted for a while. And uh, he he was being dressed by, or undressed by his dresser. And he took his jacket off. And it was absolutely like a wet T-shirt competition with his shirt. It was stuck to his skin. Um, And I was able to say to my nephew, yes, do you know why he sweats so much? He said, no. He said, because he looks to you like someone leaning back and being funny. But inside, he is an engine of effort. What he is doing is mental athleticism. It is extraordinary what his brain is doing. The the, the, the way the synapses are firing, the connections he's making, and the desire and determination to see love in every pair of eyes that looks back at him, to see love and laughter shining at him, is so desperate. It's like the desperation of a, an orphan seal to find its mother. And, and, and I remember watching him sweat and realising that that's how much he cared. That's why he was so good, but also why he was so doomed, because it is a, a pathology. It, it's not healthy 
to want so much to please everybody. It's delightful for us if you've got the talent to do it. But but the need, the deep need that you could sense in him was terrifying. I've never met anybody with such an extreme example of it. But in a sense, you've probably met enough people in show business to know that it's not uncommon amongst the performing classes, if you can call us that, yeah. to have this de- desire to please. I'm going to, if it's okay, just return to food because I have a sort of, I, I was curious, just thinking about your rural childhood in Norfolk. When was your first trip to the Fortnum and Mason store? Was it when you were younger? Was it in adulthood? Yes, it, it was one of the classic visits that you would get, I suppose, of uh, people of my type, whatever that is. <laughs> sort of uh, living in Norfolk, my prep school was in Gloucestershire, rather bizarrely, the right the other side of the country, 200 miles away from... And I went to board there from the age of seven, as my, as my brother was there already. He was a bit older than me. It always sounds a bit cruel now that you're cast away from home age seven. But no, my father it seemed was the normal. same. Yeah. Children accept what is normal around them. But what it meant was that... On term days, my mother would come with me on the train from Norwich to Liverpool Street, and then we'd cross London and do something. We'd go to, you know, the planetarium or the science museum or whatever it might be. And on one of the occasions, I think we might have probably gone to the Royal Academy to see the summer exhibition or whatever it might have been. Uh, And then just across the street, literally, is Fortnum's. And my mother had taken me into the Fountain, which is now 45 German Street, the lovely restaurant on the corner. But then it was still the remnants of what had been the very first soda fountain in Britain. Uh, they were a huge thing in America, of course, but it's that thing, and you've probably seen it in movies. You see it with is it Gloria Graham and James Stewart, I think, isn't it? In It's a Wonderful Life, where uh, it's not June Allison, the one he then falls in love with. It's the, the other girl who's the bad girl. And she sits <laughs> next to him and whispers him into his ear, I love you, George Bailey. I'll love you for the rest of my life. Do you remember that? It's a lovely yeah. scene. But it's in a classic, yes. sort of early, uh, not a 50s kind of rock and roll back to the future soda uh, but a real classic sort of 30s and 40s soda soda fountain and um these malted frosted shakes and uh, ice creams and things like that and 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 Fortnum's had them all and I mean I just was in heaven and I remember sitting there with my mother next to me my mother ordered of course just a cup of tea and I don't know sort of citron pressé or something like right. that <laughs> and, <laughs> and I of course wanted things with sprinkles and nuts and strawberry syrup and chocolate of sauce course, ev- of course ev- magic and, and it was one of those things where you were so puzzled by grown-ups because if they wanted to because of all the money grown-ups have they could have come in there every day but they didn't <laughs> Why not? What's wrong with being? What's wrong with grown-ups? So that was my first experience of Fortnum's, and then goodness me, when I was in the eighties, when I was lucky enough to be starting out in TV and things, and Christmas became this thing, and uh, I would—it sounds outrageous now—but I would hire a driver called Rolf, who was a Swede, wonderful man, who used to drive for the United Nations, and he had his Daimler. And the reason I chose the Daimler, it was one of those old-fashioned Daimlers, like with a sort of curved back, and it had a huge amount of room in it. And he would drive me in the morning, first thing at Christmas time, um, to Harrods, and I would spend the whole day going on there, buying presents and things, and I would have 
people at my house didn't fill their stockings and things. So I had about eight stockings to fill every Christmas. So I'd I'd spend a lot of time there sending all the things I bought down to door three, as it's known in Harrods, where the gentleman in the tall green top hat assembles them all and then Rolf at an agreed time because this was before mobile phones you know so Rolf would be there at half past five in the evening or something outside door three and we'd load everything in and take it back and I would shove it you know in a room somewhere and then the next day this at this point I was living in Islington I think so the next day he would pick me up and we'd do the West End run rather than the Knightsbridge run we'd do the proper Piccadilly run which would be Paxton Whitfield for cheeses Yum. in German yeah. Street <laughs> and and Fortnum and Mason's and again he would find somewhere to park and I would go in to the food department of of, of Fortnum's in particular and I would but also the drink and so and in those days, I mean, it's still a glorious place, but in those days it was sort of more outrageous, really, because <laughs> the, 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 food, the food was just packed with there were little corners. So there was a bread department and there was a cold meat department. There still are. There's a wonderful uh, lady who does the, the Spanish ham and things like that, which I, of course, no longer supposed to have, but I buy it for friends because it's so good, the jabego, you know. Oh, it melts, doesn't it? So I got very used to shopping in, in Fortnum's. And I can remember once, it's just so English again, I bumped into Tom Stoppard. And he said, uh, and what are you doing here? And I said, Tom, it's unlike you to be so inaccurate and lazy with language and with, or with logic. It's pretty, I would have thought it's fairly manifest what I'm doing here. Here's a shopping bag. Here's a shop. He said, ah, but I ask you because I am here for another motive. And I go, oh, okay. <laughs> he said, I am here to admire my son. And one of his sons, I think Edmund or Barnaby Stoppard, had got us a, a Christmas job working and, and so was wearing the, 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 the tailcoat. And so Tom and I leant against a pillar, gazing at this boy like a couple of pervy school teachers, you know, <laughs> saying, doesn't he look smart? And we said, yes, he does. And he was going, go away, go away. You <laughs> are was, awful, was... that poor boy. <laughs> yeah, <Quite>. <laughs> and it's the two it of was... you as well. It's not yeah. like it's, you know, <laughs> you will only be attracting attention. And I remember, again, of a terribly English thing I saw when I was still in my early 20s and I'd gone in there just to buy a present or something and I saw this man who was very well known at the time called Norman Sinjan Stevus. I don't know if that rings a bell to you. He became Lord Stevus of Lord Stevus of something. He was very much a favourite of Margaret Thatcher. He was a Tory MP, Norman Sinjan Stevus. He was very camp. He collected Victorian underwear and when I say Victorian underwear I mean underwear that had belonged to to Victoria, the Queen. He had a big collection of oh, tweets, lingerie, and um, <laughs> don't ask. But mm. I remember, and this was something you it just, I thought, gosh, this is Woodhousian. Um, he was standing in front of the ham and sliced meats counter with a servant. He was saying to the servant, I want half a pound more of that. And the servant would go, half a pound more of that for Lord Stevens, please. Uh, and I thought, wow. And then another occasion, which again was so English, was in the days when the flower and fruit was on the ground floor rather than in the downstairs as it is now. Uh, and they're lovely, the women who work there, I've known them for decades now, and they're still there, the, the florists and the fruits. And the fruit department, they had these 
tiny pink apples in a little basket, little punnet, and they were called strawberry apples. And she said, uh, Irene or one of the girls said to me, um, have a taste, you should. So I tasted one. I said, they're fantastic. I'll take them all. <laughs> so she said, she looked a bit doubtful and put, there was only a, a small basketful. So she put them in a brown paper bag about yay big, yay in podcast terms. Yeah. Sort of, I'd say, like a, like a pound of tomatoes sort of bag, you know. And I wandered off and went some more shopping. And then I came back and she beckoned to me. And she said, oh, I knew I shouldn't have sold you all those. I said, what's that? She said, we just had the Duchess of Devonshire asking for some and I had to say we were sold out. Oh. <laughs> I thought that is just fabulous. Snaffled these from under the nose of a Mitford, of, of, of Debo Devonshire herself. I am so <laughs> delighted for you. I hope you relish every bite. Just quickly to say about Fortnum, as I know some people will say, look, it's a tourist trap these days. It just sells high-end stuff that's incredibly expensive. But actually, and I, I have no vested interest here. I don't get paid by them or anything. <laughs> you don't have shares, they, no. The way they support British artisanal uh, growers and producers of everything from gins to uh, to, to beef and uh, some fantastic uh, food and cheese and things like that, it is it's absolutely wonderful. There's, there is so much room for a serious high-end food place, which really takes it seriously. And yes, things are more expensive. Not everyone could afford it. But these things do trickle down because the, you know, the reason there are so many more cheeses and different things available in your supermarket now is because these growers and affineurs and you know, other fancy names for them are given the opportunity to experiment and to create their their, their wonderful food and so that we, we need a Fortnum's just like you need you know Formula One I remember in the 80s they had ABS automatic braking system the idea of that being available on an ordinary car seemed absurd and then BMW introduced it in the late 80s or early 90s and now every single car you buy has had ABS as a matter of course so you know you need some of these things which, you know, passed down the thing. That's my defence for being no, I think, such an look, unutterable I think <laughs> F&M lover. I think once a year when everybody should go into Fortnum's for and just walk around, I think there is a certain just, it's entertainment as much as anything else. It's pure, it it's is. Willy Wonka, you know, it's like you're, you're there and you're just, it, your eyes are wide. Well, we're nearly out of time. I'm sad. <laughs> I want to, I want to, I want you to come home with me. Um, but I have, um, I have a few questions. We do a quick fire round, and don't worry, it's not too, um, it's not too horrendous. Mm. But um, I would love you to describe your perfect cup of tea. Ah, well, that's a, uh, that's a, ooh, that's a really good question. Actually, I like that because, yeah, it, it probably would be a tea bag and I know that's shaming in some respects uh, and I do get sent lovely tins of loose leaf tea and I do make them in teapots and get a real amount of pleasure out of it but I am when all said and done uh, very traditional in this regard English breakfast tea in a mug the right size yeah milk in last for me personally I do have milk in tea so yeah. I know that Discuss some people. You have a, a friend scene of mine, in Gosford Park, don't you, about milk in first or milk in last? And I always that's right. That sort of the class <laughs> yeah, system right. is sort of laid bare by whether it? or not you could put the milk in yeah. first or last. Yeah, they actually used to use the initials. They're a bit M I F. They're oh. a bit milk in first to describe people. They're terribly nice. Don't get me wrong. 
It's it's a bit like that one, was it, the Duke of Sunderland, who said about some neighbours who'd moved near his estate in Scotland, oh, very nice people, uh, bought furniture. Oh. <laughs> it's this idea that people buy furniture rather than inheriting it. It's bought furniture. Isn't that an extraordinary idea? Very nice. Very uh, nice. Anyway. <laughs> But um, that's the tea I like, and there is nothing like it. It's just fabulous. Uh, when I'm in America, I despair at how bad. I know, tea. I know. The hot water with the tea bag on the side is criminal. <laughs> it's just white. Oh. Um, okay, what is your most joyful memory when it comes to a meal? Oh my goodness! What a. Uh, I suppose I should have to be romantic and say it was uh, uh, when. Uh, now, five and a half years, six years ago, I went to a little restaurant in Mayfair, just off Curzon Street, with my boyfriend, Elliot. And when he went to the loo at one point, I took out a little engagement ring and put it on the end of his fork. And he came back, and I was suddenly terrified he was going to lift up his fork dramatically, and the ring would shh, shoot across the restaurant, <laughs> land in somebody's soup. Uh, but... Uh, Fortunately, he just picked the, and then he looked, and he went, what? Oh, no. And so I asked him to marry me there and then, and we, so we got engaged. So it was a glorious, uh, it was a good dinner anyway, but of course it was the only dinner like that I've ever had, and I hope the only one I ever will have. That is going to be Um, the best answer to that question I ever received on this podcast. That is just magical. (laughs) I love that. I'm very glad he didn't, yes, throw it into somebody else's meal. This is a a question I think is just almost impossible to answer, but what food or drink do you wish you'd invented? (laughs) (laughs) That is a good one, isn't it? The magic of eggs is something that never ceases to astonish me, and I am always... I think it was Emerson who said that uh, humanity's quest is always to find a better mousetrap, you know, that technology and science are always, you know, okay, that'll trap a mouse. Is there a better way, a more elegant way? And is there a better way to scramble eggs? Is there a better way to poach them? And it's amazing how many variants there are. You know, I see, I just, I'm going to try a poached egg method, by the way, which I only saw yesterday, where you take a frying pan or skillet and fill it with hot water. Uh, fill it with hot water and boil the boil the water, and then roll in four eggs, say, into the water, and then s- slowly roll the eggs with a finger, trying not to burn yourself, obviously, using a silicon glove possibly as well. Yeah. Roll them so you're just kind of parboiling them. Then you open them into a swirl of water. I'm actually am going to try that method. I might send you a photo of my disaster, my inevitable disaster. And here's one I heard, uh, which I've tried, which does work for scrambled eggs. And you've got to hold on to your seats here because everybody knows that (laughs) their version of scrambled eggs is the best. There's the famous Gordon Ramsay method, which is the classic French method, which is very slow. The Rue brothers do that as well. You'd cube up cold um, unsalted butter, put lots of that in with the eggs when you beat them and then put them and then at a low heat, which you keep taking the pan off, you slowly stir it. And it can take 15 or 20 minutes to get the curds going in the in the eggs, but it, it, it's um, it, they're beautiful. But this way is quicker and even creamier, uh, if you like creamy. You will hate it when I say it because it sounds so wrong. But you take, you do a mixture, you do a starch mixture. You take some, a little bit of water and a tablespoonful of potato starch or tapioca starch or corn starch. Potato starch, I found the best. I've tried it a couple of times. And then you stir that into the water to make a kind of slurry. 
then you add the cold cubed butter and eggs to that slurry and beat it, not too hard, but enough just to break all the eggs up, uh, and salt, because there's a whole uh, religious schism about whether or not you put salt in the eggs before you cook them. Does it loosen them too much? Oh, all that. Anyway, but apparently you do put a little bit of salt in. Then you cook quite quickly, a bit like Australian folded eggs, if you've ever done those, which is a wonderful recipe. Um, So you do them pretty quickly. And the result is astonishing. It is so cre- so, you, but you don't need to add uh, double cream or mascarpone or, or milk or anything to them. Uh, the, the, that slurry has that effect. You have shown me such ambition around eggs. Have you had? Have you? Has your ambition ever undone you? Oh, in the kitchen? absolutely. I still remember this. As you, you know, there's such a thing as road rage, but there's also such a thing as kitchen, <laughs> kitchen not rage, yes. but kitchen despair. I mean, genuine despair when a thing goes wrong. It is heartbreaking it's you know it's not like the anger you get when someone cuts you up in traffic that's just narcissistic rage but with cooking because cooking is for other people yes it's show-offy because you want to please other people and you want them you don't want them to admire you you just want them to accept your present and be made happy by it which is what the gift of giving food to people gives you as a uh, when you cook so I think that's why there's so much heartache when it goes wrong I did this it took me so long it was going to be the best dundee cake ever made all the fruits i mixed in and the uh, the nuts on top and it cooked it it was beautiful it came out of the oven it fantastic took out the cake ring like that put it down to cool gathered the family around i was about in my 20s then i think and i had some people staying at my house and i was just sort of proud of the fact that i was an independent young man as it were and i cut into it and the cake mixture just came pooling out like some great stream of lava. It was utterly uncooked in the middle. And I'd obviously, I think I must have turned on the grill instead of the oven, if you know what I mean. It was just something that cooked so perfectly on the outside that it looked golden. And it just, and with it died my hopes, Felicity. I've never been the same man since. (laughs) (laughs) We've all been there. We've all been there. It's it's horrible. You're (laughs) devastated. And you just think those hours, the hours of peeling and cutting. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, Stephen, you are just pure pleasure. I honestly, I'm so grateful to you for having taken this time. Such a delight, honestly. I think you should be prescribed weekly for everybody (laughs) under lockdown and beyond. You've got to be be very careful how you say that, because as uh, (laughs) I will will go into my boring professorial linguistic mode, but the the most common vowel in English is the schwa, which is not, um, well, it's, it's if you've ever seen phonetic writing, it's the upside down e, and every vowel, every vowel can be a schwa because it's the sound uh. So it's an o as in actor. Uh, it's an e as in interesting. It's any sound that's uh. It's a, a u as in put. Um, it's an uh sound. And indeed, voice coaches, I'm sure uh, Emily will tell you this. Voice coaches, uh, it's what they work on when you do a different accent because different cultures and languages use a different way of of doing words which we use just for an uh so you know they will say actor or actor not actor actor it's very english to go uh for lots and lots of different vowels um it's an a as in abscond uh it's just an uh and so when you said i should be prescribed were you saying i should be proscribed which means forbidden 
or prescribed, no. <laughs> which means put on a, as a prescription. <laughs> you are, I think you are medicinal in the very best way. Very kind. I would, take, I would have you as a weekly dose, if not a daily dose, I think. It's been an absolute joy talking to you and all power to this podcast. It's, it's, it's important because it is the, it's the little extras in life that are the necessities. It's the things you can live without that you can't live without. Stephen was so generous with his time and it was such a joy to talk to him. I only wish we'd been together in person, but here's hoping we'll be able to do that again soon. If you enjoyed that, we'd love to hear from you. Please leave a quick rating and a review and follow us wherever you're listening so that you never miss an episode. Those two simple things will help lots more people to find us as well. Do join me next week when I'll be chatting to another inspiring guest about everything from food and drink through to arts and culture. Goodbye for now.